Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about a terrific podcast called Time to Eat the Dogs. It's hosted by Michael Robinson, a historian, and it's about exploration. Now, if you're clever, and I know you are because you listen to the New Books Network, you can probably figure out why a podcast about exploration would be called Time to Eat the Dogs. Well, Michael has interviewed many scholars and historians and researchers, and he even interviewed an astronaut about their books about exploration. You can find Time to Eat the Dogs at timetoeatthedogs.com. What else? You can also find it on iTunes. As I say, we really love this podcast at the New Books Network, and we love it so much that we're going to republish some of Michael's excellent interviews. And if I would just stop talking, which I'm going to do presently, you'll be able to hear one of those interviews. So I'm going to stop talking. When the science fiction film 2001 A Space Odyssey came out in 1968, it was a spectacular success at the box office. The film filled theaters across the United States, but movie critics hated it. It's time to eat the dogs. I'm Michael Robinson. Today, Michael Benson talks about the making of 2001, a movie inspired by the collaboration of director Stanley Kubrick and the British futurist Arthur C. Clarke. Benson is a writer, artist, and filmmaker. He's also the author of Space Odyssey, Stanley Kubrick, Arthur C. Clarke, and the Making of a Masterpiece. Michael Benson, thank you for talking with me today. My pleasure. In 1964, uh, the American director, Stanley Kubrick, who who was already quite famous for films such as Lolita, Dr. Strangelove, he approaches the science writer, the novelist, Arthur C. Clarke, about making a science fiction film. I was wondering if you could tell us what, what do science fiction films look like in the early 1960s? Well, it's interesting you mention that because I've been making the point over the last year or so um, that... There were truly interesting sci-fi movies being made in Europe before 2001. And this Mm -hmm. includes uh, Godard's great film, Alphaville, which is about as as different from 2001 as you can imagine, while still being a great movie. Um, And then, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you've got La Jete, Chris Marker's photo roman, which has only one motion picture shot in the entire feature length. Uh, I think it's feature length or at least an hour long. Uh, film comprised otherwise of stills. And those are both notable films in film history. So the sort of received wisdom that prior to 2001, there weren't any interesting science fiction movies or, or they were all filled with little green men and, uh-huh. and bad visual effects is not quite right. Um, but there is some truth there. I'm um, certainly Hollywood uh, had not really made a film that I would consider uh, truly worthwhile or worthy when it comes to vying for 
greatest films lists and so forth. I mean, you had Lost in Space, you had various other films that were had their moments. And certainly what Kubrick produced and achieved, Kubrick and Clark achieved with 2001 wouldn't have been possible without prior work, various uh-huh. examples of prior work. And in fact, in my book, I talk about a Russian film, A Cosmic Voyage, which uh, experimented with various visual effects techniques that, that Kubrick used later for 2001. So there, there are notable prior movies, that's for sure. So, yeah, so one of the things that was interesting to me is that um, I, I take what you're saying, that there were these innovative films, almost kind of like art house films, but there were people who knew Kubrick, I'm thinking of the British director Brian Forbes that you talk about in your book, who actually tried to warn him off from science fiction. Why do you think that was? Well, I also quote uh, Christiane Kubrick uh, observing to me, and by the way, Christiane Kubrick, um, apart from being very forthcoming um, when it came to my uh, discussing 2001 and her husband with her, um, was a science fiction fan, as was Stanley as a kid. Mm -hmm. So Christiane read all the pulp magazines just as Stanley did as a kid in high school and and, and, and elementary school. Um, But she said to me that, and I think this is correct, you know, that science fiction was just a notch above pornography (laughs) in in its social acceptability (laughs) uh, at the time that 2001 was made. It was considered a very fourth rate genre. But as I just said earlier, I mean, you know, various experimental and not so experimental movies were beginning to undermine that. Yeah, I, I got the impression reading your book that Kubrick, and, and tell me if I'm wrong on this, but that Kubrick saw this as a kind of intellectual challenge. Can I take this genre and crank out something that's really fundamentally different in kind than other stuff? Um, or is that just how we read it looking backwards? Oh, no, I think you're right. I mean, uh, he took it as a opportunity, you know. Um, I mean, you know, we have to remember that 2001 was produced at a time when the human race <laughs> in the form of both the Russians, the Soviet Union and the United States were both uh, pushing very hard to produce technologies permitting human beings to travel to the moon. It came out of the zeitgeist of the time as well. I don't think it would be an exaggeration to say that, you know, starting with Gagarin and Sputnik in 57, Yuri Gagarin in 62, um, you know, and then uh, the American astronauts started going into orbit too. You had uh, our collective attention in a way was turning to space. And so the reason, I think there are two reasons why MGM and its CEO, Robert O'Brien, thought it would be worth betting a lot of money on Kubrick's project. And one was that, you know, Kubrick had had a commercial and critical success with Dr. Strangelove and had shown himself to be capable of handling a truly big budget Hollywood production with Spartacus Uh uh, in the late 50s. Um, But also because there was so much publicity and so much, you know, uh, you know, hero worship of the American astronauts going on and this competition with the Soviet Union, the space race was happening. So, Clearly, there was a built-in, baked-in interest and publicity going on about that type of activity, yeah. which could only only benefit 2001. You know, One of the things that I think your book does really well is describe the really radically different personalities of Kubrick and Clark 
they they were you know kind of the fundamental odd couple. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about them individually and the friendship that grew up between them. Well, there were also a lot of similarities. I mean, they were both oddball, expat, brilliant people in their own way. They had complementary skill sets in the sense that uh, Clark had spent a lifetime really working out ideas associated with space exploration and the possibility of extraterrestrial intelligence and these things. And Kubrick was at the peak of his powers as a director and had made multiple films uh, and had the skills necessary to bring Clark's ideas to the screen, which doesn't, you know, what I said shouldn't be taken as, you know, uh, some kind of intimation that it was Clark's ideas and Kubrick's skills. You know, it was really a true collaboration. Um, I've compared it to Lennon and McCartney, which may be a little bit over the top, but uh, in the <laughs> sense that, you know, it was a, it was a, you know, because Lennon and McCartney also were different, weren't they? Very different personalities. Sometimes collaborations really uh, benefit from having two strong individual, but different personalities. I mean, there's a famous story about McCartney coming into the studio one day with a little ditty he had written the previous night. And it was all about things getting better all the time. It's getting better all the time. And it was a kind of a pop song about how good everything was. And then um, Lennon got a hold of the lyrics and said, and added the line, it couldn't get much worse. Yeah. <laughs> and so you had yeah. the, you immediately had the bitter and the sweet in there. And uh, I think that with 2001, you have something similar going on. You know, Kubrick was famous for being a kind of um, cold-eyed, you know, sort of... Uh, I think incorrectly viewed as cynical. I think he was more of a realist than a cynic. You know, he, he was not without hope. It's just that he was a very, he was really a hardcore realist uh, and skeptic, you know, and with yeah. Clark, you had a techno utopian effectively um, somebody very optimistic. So that's that combination, that compound produced 2001. Yeah, I, I was uh, really struck. There's a point in your book where you talk about how, you know, Clark is, although this is a real collaboration, Clark really is this massive idea generating machine. I mean, he's <laughs> just, um, he does so much work for the Interplanetary Society. He's writing op-eds, he's writing, you know, novels. And and Kubrick, meanwhile, is writing things. I think you have an excerpt for him, you know, writing notes where he's saying, you know, it's a shame we couldn't just get rid of plots. <laughs> you know, plots are really, it'd be great if we could, you know, articulate these visions without the, you know, the structure of a plot, but we need it, you know. And so they seem to be thinking at these really different planes about how to create a visual artifact. Yeah, probably that's fair. I mean, by the way, that meditation about having a plotless narrative, which I guess is not an oxymoron, um, came out of a very interesting discussion with Joseph Heller that I stumbled on in the Kubrick archives in London. Uh, he had mm. quite a long discussion with Joseph Heller, and he, he talked about the plotless, you know, that film is such a powerful medium that, that it is possible to hold an audience without necessarily having the you know, classical plot structures to do it in, you know, and that that's a, that's a vic kind of a victory. And I forget Heller's comment on that, but Heller was uh, clearly respectful of that point of view. So uh, speaking about plots, Kubrick eventually, I mean, after they kind of go back and forth, 
they decide that the kernel of the new film would be a story that Clark had written previously called The Sentinel. I was wondering if you could talk about that story. Yeah, The Sentinel was written in the 50s, uh, and it involved the discovery of a pyramid-shaped crystal monolith, not monolith, a pyramid-shaped crystal object clearly of alien origin on the moon by a lunar survey expedition. And the first-person narrator of this quite short story, you know, ends up concluding after they managed to break, bust the thing open using nuclear power, at which point this, its signal to the stars ceases. That's the way Clark had it in the Sentinel. Um, the Sentinel mm-hmm. uh, being the object in question. I mean, the, the title of the story is about the, this pyramid-shaped object. So the, the signal to the stars ceases, and then the narrator meditates on what that means and, you know, and where from the, Milky, from the banked stars of the Milky Way will these, the people who made the creatures that made that object come from. I, I do not think we will have to wait for long, I think is the concluding sentence of the story. So you have this kind of ominous implication that, oh, my God, you know, we, oh, by the way, the narrator also refers to the Sentinel as a kind of burglar alarm. So the core, oh, the huh. core idea that an alien race might have put something on the moon intended to warn that race uh, as to uh, whether or not a species may have arisen on Earth that succeeded in acquiring, you know, rising to a level of technological sophistication permitting them to move, to go to the moon. Uh, that core idea is at the core of two thousand and one, and the monolith descended from that pyramid. Yeah, 2001's monolith, mysterious monolith, descended from that. The pyramid-shaped or a trapezoid, trapezoidal, no, tetrahedral uh, yeah. object in uh, in the Sentinel. The uh, uh, the thing that you make very clear in writing about this story is that although this is the kernel of 2001, you know, by the time the film goes forward, it's massively expanded to include, you know, to to basically open with this, you know clan of hominids millions of years ago who encounter an alien artifact and then yes. jumps to the present. And then, of course, there's the last part of the film that uh, traces uh, the, the voyage of Discovery 1 to um, to Jupiter to, to find evidence of uh, alien life. And I, I was stunned that all of this stuff that gets, ha- that, that gets attached to the film is, is so open-ended. I mean, they decide that they that it would be best to write a novel about this story first, and then adapt it as a screenplay, and then re-edit it as they're filming. I mean, it to me, it just sounds like a complete recipe for disaster. Yeah, um, that's right. I mean, uh, the book gets into this quite a bit about the improvised nature of this uh, of, of the endeavor. And I think that a lot of people were kind of staggered. A lot of film world professionals who were working with Kubrick were staggered at the extent, the amount of improvisation going on on set. So Kubrick would come in in the morning, having spent all night long dwelling, uh, meditating on, you know, on the plot and change everything. Um, I think I have a quote in the book of Tony Masters, the brilliant cinographer, set designer, art director of the film. Um, he said that his the art department was suicidal <laughs> <laughs> because of all these last minute changes that Kubrick was bringing in. So um, you know Kubrick, who by the way, uh, it's not that well known, but he studied jazz drumming and he had ambitions to be 
a drummer uh, when he was in high school and then later. And he continued playing drums, by the way. I heard from Christian Kubrick uh, at home. He would practice his drumming. So he had sort of internalized this hipster, Greenwich Village, uh, beatnik, bohemian jazz kind of sensibility, if I can put it that way. And uh-huh. um, and I've compared, I compared him in the book to a, a leader of a band. You know, if you're leading a band and it's a jazz band, you've got to learn to listen to the other players. So you're leading the band, but you're giving the musicians in your band a chance to play and to shine. That's one aspect of what happened with 2001. And another is you're improvising, you know, jazz is improvisation. Um, so he kept his, he kept his options open throughout the film. He was constantly trying new things. Uh, Doug Trumbull, the visual effects, uh, one of the four visual effects supervisors on the film talked about how improvisatory he was and, uh, and how uh, unusual it was. Um, I'm trying to remember his exact phrase he used. Uh, about Stanley, but um, it was it's quite unusual. I mean, we had a major big budget production with a hell of a lot of money. Oh, yeah, that's right. He called it a, a, a giant research and development project. And I think that's accurate. Yeah. So that's what that's what Doug Trumbull said. We were, we were involved in a big giant R&D project funded by MGM. Yeah, you know, but at the same time that he's uh, he's improvising like this, uh, you also make clear he's he's a completely obsessive and perfectionistic director. I mean, he he runs so many takes of one scene that he reduces one of his actors to tears. Could you talk about you know? Yeah, I think Kubrick uh, later in his career he became uh, almost ridiculous in that sense. I mean, he would do t- take after take after take after take. You know, we're talking about Barry Lyndon and, and afterwards um, some of these later films, and actors were really have problems there. Um, in the in the case of this 2001 scene, I think he probably rightfully expected the actor in question, you know, William Sylvester, uh, to have remembered his lines. And he wanted to get the entire scene in one take. And uh, he kept on uh, trying to get that master shot of the scene. And Sylvester kept on stumbling over different words. And then finally he had, you know, something close to a nervous breakdown and had to be taken by a nurse off the set and probably given some sedatives. I don't know. And so one of the visual effects guys who I spoke to said that, you know, even though he admired Stanley greatly, it was an example of how Stanley could be cruel to actors, sometimes be cruel. So that went on, Uh, but you know, um, not to defend this kind of act, this kind of conduct, basically with any film production, you're, you're trying to get some reasonable percentage of your initial aspirations. And um, mm-hmm. it's not unreasonable to, to hope, to assume that an actor hired for a certain amount of money and, you know, a professional would learn his lines, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that case, I guess my point is that in that case, the multiple takes were not about performance. They were about lines. You know, they were about yeah, yeah. simply yeah. delivering the text correctly, you know. The uh, film, as it emerges, combines things that have never been seen before, spectacular special effects, uh, this incredible interior view of uh, Discovery One. Could you talk about some of the innovations of the film? Well, you know, there were so many. Prior to 2001, you didn't have realistic depictions of spaceflight, not really. I mean, I did mention that Russian movie. Uh, you know, there were, there were 
interesting experimental movies out there. But um, that attention to detail and obsessiveness that you mentioned about Kubrick um, really was policing the realism in a significant way. And the intention was that the audience uh, willingly suspend disbelief so that so that in the end, the metaphysical elements at the end, that the, the way would have been paved to engender, if that's the term, audience uh-huh. belief, you know, so that the, the audience would have been lulled into belief that this was a real mission to a real planet. And there's something about that, the achievement of 2001, or, or let me put it another way. One aspect of the achievement of 2001 is, you know, for example, when uh, David Bowman, the commander of the mission, is deprogramming the HAL 9000 computer, and HAL is pleading for his life. Yeah. You know, um, that you really do feel that you are out there somewhere between Earth and Jupiter, and that, and that this duel between the last, survive, the last surviving human crew member and the only AI on board you know, is, is real and is happening in, in real space and time. I mean, that achievement or the achievement of that was based grounded on the realism, the utter realism of the spacecraft. And um, another aspect I could highlight about that is that Kubrick and Clark, you know, another aspect of this being an R and D project is Kubrick and Clark went to the best people in the business, uh, Bell Labs, you know, IBM went to the top people in Bell Labs, IBM and other companies and had very meaningful discussions and consultations with them. And, and we're talking about people who really were busy creating the future, brilliant people who were producing transistors and satellites, you know, um, things that we are absolutely reliant on today, solid state electronics, uh, flat screens, you know, um, yeah. AI, you know, projections of AI. And Marvin Minsky, um, one of the co-founders, one of two co-founders of MIT's Artificial Intelligence Lab, was a key advisor to Kubrick and Clark, you know, about how... So you did have this commitment to realism, which I think is absolutely unprecedented and hasn't, you know, hasn't been matched since. The thing that's uh, really striking to me when I hear you talk about the realism of the film is that it seems to be coupled also with these innovations that are quite disorienting for uh, an audience maybe in 1968. I mean, for example, uh, scenes in space which are silent, there's yes. no sound or the use of classical soundtracks by Strauss, you know, Blue Danube and uh, thus spoke Zarathustra. Mm-hmm. These are these things must have been come across as very, very strange to uh, late 60s audiences. Yeah. One reason the film was not well received by the critics uh, in 68 was that it was so uh, experimental in that sense. First of all, using not using a a score produced for the film, but using pieces that were well known from the and not so well known from the classical canon. I mean, not so well known uh, pieces would include um, the work of Ligeti, the Hungarian avant-gardist, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But off-the-shelf music rather than music produced for the film that was a that was unprecedented, largely mm-hmm. unprecedented. There have been a couple of examples of that, you know. And then, yes, as you said, having utter silence for some of the shots of the spacewalk spacewalks plural um was unprecedented and they and that hasn't been used since i mean because it's such a 
Uh, I mean, I went to film school and I was a filmmaker and, you know, you, it, one of the one of the rules of filmmaking really is you never have silence on the soundtrack. It's just not hmm. done. You always have room tone, something called room tone. But of course, in space, you know, you have utter vacuum, a hard vacuum. You don't have sound. You do have sound, the sound of breathing. So if the, yeah. if the intention of the director is to put the audience within the helmet of the astronaut who's doing the spacewalk, then you have, uh, you know, Kubrick did, you know, he had breathing and electronic sounds and, you know, the sound of air venting into, you know, feeding into the helmet or into the spacesuit and these kinds of things. But when, um, when you had an exterior view of the astronaut, he would have, he would cut to hard silence. And to this day, it's a very strange thing. I think audiences are not prepared. Audiences who haven't seen 2001 aren't prepared to suddenly be in a silent theater. You can hear you can hear the person sitting next to you <laughs> shifting in his or her seat, you know, yeah. not something you're used to. And certainly with contemporary science fiction, you always have such loud, you know, clangorous soundtracks. You mentioned that uh, when the film came out, uh, people had problems with it. I mean, it was it was panned, right? I mean, largely, yeah. Arthur Clarke leaves the, the theater in tears. Uh, yes. What what was the reception of the film? Well, um, the older established kind of representatives of the media elite, the leading critics of New York and so forth, um, panned it largely, although there was a very positive review in The New Yorker. But most of the other uh, leading critics really slammed it as a failure and an embarrassing failure. And they, they did it in some of them in very personal terms, um, you know, personal, personally insulting to Kubrick. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, one result of that is that um, the myth evolved that the film was on its way to failure when young people uh, and hippies, you know, uh, saved the film. But this is actually only partly correct. The fact is from day one, people were lining up to see that film and it was Mm -hmm. the commercial success. It was the number one commercial success of 68. And that started on day one, despite negative reviews. And it, and what's true about that uh, cliche idea about 2001 is that it, it really was younger people. We're talking the late, you know, late sixties cultural divide, never trust anybody over 30 and all that. Right. Uh-huh. Um, younger people were primed to accept avant-garde experimental art in various media. You know, it was a period of, um, uh, innovation in all the arts, you know, you had rock and roll peaking, you know, acid rock, all of this really radically innovative, unusual, you know, major forms of art being produced at the time, the living theater in New York. So kids, you know, kids below a certain age, people below a certain age were much more ready to accept a pure visual experience, you know, uh, audio visual without a lot of clues given to the audience about what's happening. And older yeah. people, by and large, older people uh, found it harder to understand or to get it. Why do you think that uh, eventually, and, and fairly quickly, within a year or two, the critical community starts to come around to the film? Well, I, I don't think it was that fast. I mean, well, it depends. You know, these things are hard to quantify, right? So you had rave reviews in 68 by leading critics, including the Boston Globe uh, reviewer who, who said, this film is as exciting as the dis- discovery of a new dimension in life. You know, we're talking <laughs> utter rage. Um, but those, the kind of the, the, the key players, especially in the New York City 
uh, critical community continue to diss the film. Some of them came around. Um, some of them came around. But um, it took a while for the collective consensus to start placing 2001 among the top films ever made. It took decades, you know, um, and it only appeared the, the leading uh, the leading compendium of such uh, such things is the is Sight and Sound magazine, the British Film Indi- uh, British Film Institute's magazine, Sight and Sound, does a, an annual excuse me a decadal survey every ten years. Uh-huh. They do a survey of top film world professionals and top directors. And it took until uh, late '90s for it to start appearing in the critical uh, list, critics list, and it took until the 2000s for it to appear in the directors list. But it's currently number two on the directors list, wow. second most important film of all time. You know, <laughs> so uh, it, you know, it was a climb. So now, 50 years later, what? Where do you see the influence of the film? You know, what aspects of the film continue to live on today? Well, I see it all over the place. I see it in design. I see references to HAL 9000 all the time because of the contemporary debate about uh, artificial intelligence. Um, I see it, and you certainly see it. Let me just I should have said this first. You know, 2001 marked the end of the Western as the ruling paradigmatic Hollywood genre and, and the rise of science fiction as the ruling. So every sci-fi spectacle that comes out every summer owes its uh, existence to the success, the commercial success of 2001 and 68. 2001 caused a new generation of directors, you know, Spielberg, Lucas, Ridley Scott, you know, to, to be inspired and to seek to either emulate or surpass Anyway, to make space films, you know, science fiction films, um, it proved that um, it could be done and be successful, um, and it changed Hollywood. You know, so you're you're a film producer, you're, and you're a writer on space exploration. You've curated exhibitions on planetary photography and deep space at the Smithsonian. How has uh, 2001 influenced you, or or I guess you could put it the other way around? How has your work shaped what you think of the film? Well, let me answer the first one. I mean, you know, I tend 2001 covers 4 million years of evolution and places the human race in this vast space-time context, you know. Um, it's a, it's really extraordinary in that, on that level. I mean, you, you do not have a larger canvas in any um, work of any other work of art, I would say. Um, and so that definitely influenced me for a lifetime. I mean, the works that I'm producing, you know, I'm writing books, I'm, I'm making visual art and so forth. And I, I've, I've done documentary films. I try somehow, I always try to be comprehensive somehow to go from the alpha to the omega, you know, to uh-huh. look at the wider context of everything. Um, so I've been influenced in that way. But I, I also, I wasn't only curating planetary images, but I'm also producing them from raw data from interplanetary spacecraft. Uh-huh. So I take raw data, raw image data from interplanetary missions, and and I do a lot of work, production work on it, post production, <laughs> to produce uh, large format color landscape photographs of of vistas that have not been seen by the human eye, huh. only by robotic spacecraft. I wouldn't be doing that if I hadn't had the conviction from an early age that 
um, that the space exploration is not some just a scientific endeavor or some geeky, nerdy thing that's done by, you know, space geeks, scientists, so on, but it, it belongs to the arts. It belongs rightfully to the arts, to philosophy, you know. It belongs to our ongoing, the ongoing story of our quest to understand our position in the universe, which yeah. is a fascinating thing to me, you know. So um, I saw 2001 for the first time in 68 when I was six years old. My mom took me to see it, you know, and it really blew me away. The way you can be blown away by a work of art, the right work of art, when you're quite young. And I saw it many times since then, of course. And um, it really did change, you know, not to sound cliched or anything, but it really changed the way. It's not that hard to change the way somebody looks at at life at age six, I suppose. Um, but it certainly did it in a, in a profoundly meaningful way to me, for me, you know. You know, um, when I think about that vision of um, finding extraterrestrial life, you know, Dave Bowman's trip on Discovery One, it seems like today our best hope for these discoveries is not coming, let's say, from either humans traveling into space or even maybe long-distance photography, but from you know some of the work that's being done, for example, on exoplanets and these uh, different telescopes that can now you know see literally see planets and other solar systems. I was wondering if you thought at all about just like how might the next story of uh, the search for life be told? Is it going to be a visual story or is it is it going to have to be something else? Well, it's a really good question. Um, you could have an entire program based on that. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, it's really hard to say. You know, I I think that it's quite possible that we might even discover life within the solar system that developed separately from Earth. So, for example, I've been fascinated by a, a moon orbiting Jupiter for mm. years, uh, Europa, which is an ice-capped global ocean, saltwater, liquid saltwater ocean, um, seven to eight times more saltwater than all the oceans of Earth combined orbiting Jupiter. So all indications are that um, that water has been in existence and liquid for more than enough time for life to have developed there. And it's sufficiently far away that if life developed there, it's highly unlikely that it would have you know, originated on Earth and then been transported there or something yeah. like that. So it's a, it's a fascinating question. And then when it comes to, you know, terrestrial planet finding missions and so forth that NASA's launching, um, that's a really fascinating story also. We have discovered you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of potentially Earth-sized planets out there. Um, some of them not that far. Uh, of course, they're all far away because they're orbiting other stars. But some of those stars are a lot near. They're near enough so it's imaginable that within a century or two centuries, if we don't destroy this planet first and destroy human civilization first, we might succeed in sending a mission there or, or developing technologies capable of looking more closely at, at those planets. So yeah. um, it's a very interesting question. Yeah. So, well, the, by the way, that is another continuing reason for, for 2001's relevance. We don't know, you know, there's this great mystery. Are we alone or not? Yeah. Michael Benson, thank you so much for talking with me. Well, thanks. It was a pleasure. That's it for today. The music was composed by Zabrat 
make sure you check out the Time to Eat the Dogs website for podcast links and other exploration-related stuff. And if you get the chance, please take a minute to rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps make the show visible to new listeners. And if you want to recommend a guest or make a comment, feel free to contact me at Time to Eat the Dogs. That's one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. See you next week.